today is the fourth week that we've been in the series called The Drift, and we're going to end this series on September the 11th. And on the morning of September the 11th, uh, for all of our churches here in London, Somerset, Williamsburg, and Middlesbrough, on September the 11th, uh, we're calling it Revive Sunday. And that Sunday is, is completely designed uh, to facilitate a time of refocusing and recommitment and renewal uh, to the things that God has called us to. Uh, and so that whole day is gonna be about wrapping up this series and about really just giving our church, individuals, and our church as a whole an opportunity to, to recommit to the things that are most important. So I hope that not only will you be here on the 11th, uh, but I hope that you'll be praying about it and I hope that you'll invite somebody uh, to be a part of it because we'll wrap up the series and, and I think it could be a special day uh, for not only you, but I think it could be a special day for me and for all of us. So we'll wrap up the series in a couple of weeks on the morning of the 11th. But we started this series uh, four weekends ago uh, with a verse out of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter two, verse one, the writer says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And so this is a warning from the writer of Hebrews, and not only is it the warning uh, that we find from the author of the book of Hebrews, but it's the warning that we've been talking about week after week throughout this series. And, and the warning is simply this, pay attention so that you do not drift. Pay attention so you do not drift. Stay engaged, stay focused, stay intentional, stay active, stay growing, stay closely connected to what is right, what is good and what is best. Why? So that you don't drift. Stay, stay focused in, keep on paying attention. Stay active, stay engaged, stay growing, stay intentional, stay connected to what is right, what is good and what is best so that you do not drift away. And the implications are clear. Uh, and when you really think about it and you think what he's saying and you read between the lines, you know, the author is saying, hey, don't be careless with your life. Just don't be careless with your life. Don't be thoughtless. Live your life thoughtfully, live your life skillfully. Pay attention to the trajectory that your life is currently on. Just don't get you know, what's happening today and just what's happening tomorrow, but think about the trajectory that your life is currently on by how you're living, the choices you're making, your current set of priorities. And as you are thoughtful considering the trajectory of your life, hey, don't neglect what's most important. And then when you take the whole book of Hebrews together and, and you try to extrapolate some, some really important principles, I think that the writer would say, and I don't think I'm just putting words in his mouth, but I think the writer of Hebrews would say, hey, don't get so busy that you get imprisoned in the status quo. Don't get so busy that you get imprisoned by the status quo. Don't, don't just fall into a rut, into a routine. You know, you get up the same time, the same way every day. You do the same thing every day. You got your little routine. You come home, there's dinner, maybe a show on Netflix, get the kids to bed. You know, oh no, gotta get the kids showered, then to bed. And then finally, maybe a few breaths, maybe a short conversation with your spouse and then to bed and it all begins again tomorrow. And, and you have no margin for anything else. You, you have no thought for anything else. You've just gotten so busy in the routine of your life, so busy that you've got imprisoned in the status quo. There's no effort being made for progress. There's really no investment made in growth. You're just kind of, you're just kind of imprisoned in status quo because you're so busy. And I think he would say, hey, don't get so busy that you get imprisoned in the status quo. I think another thing that we would learn from the book of Hebrews that the author would tell us is, don't get so disengaged from the practice of your faith that you begin to lose faith. 
and, and all throughout Hebrews, you're gonna find allusions and expressions of our faith, like serving others and, and, and living our lives to make a difference, being connected with other believers in such a way that it inspires us to good works and, and about how important it is to gather with other believers like we are today. And, and I think the writer would say, hey, don't get so disengaged from the practice of your faith. Don't get so far away from attending the local church. Don't get so far away from serving through the local church or being generous or prayer or reading the scripture. Don't get so far away from the practice of your faith that you end up in a place where you begin to lose your faith. And then I think another thing that the writer would tell us is don't get so distracted by the less important things that you begin to sacrifice the most important things. Uh, don't get so distracted by the less important things that you begin to sacrifice the most important things. And, and so for the past few weeks, basically the message has been this. Stay close to what's right, what's good, and what's best, and do everything you can to resist the drift. Stay close, stay as close as you can to what is right, to what is good, and what is best, and do everything you possibly can to resist the drift. Do all that you can to resist that gravitational pull that results in unintentional movement, that causes unintentional change, that negatively impacts the quality and the direction of your life. It's an unintended move with unintended changes that negatively impact the quality and the direction of your life. He says, do whatever you can to avoid the drift because it's an important thing. So stay close connected to what's right, what's good, and what's best. Now, last week we talked about how the longer we drift and the further we drift, uh, the greater <clears throat> our blind spots become. And, and that was pretty important, and hopefully you'll go online and you'll, you'll catch up on that. But today, this is what I would like for us to think about for the next few minutes. The wake of our drift can have generational consequences. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been talking about the fact that your personal drift my personal drift, um, there's consequences to that. There's consequences for me, there's consequences to the people who are closest to me. So there's consequences to drift. There's always consequences to us drifting away from what is right, what is good, and what is best. Every single time, there's consequences. But today I want us to think a little broader and I want us to think a little longer and I want us to think about the fact that the wake of our drift, because everybody's been on a boat before and maybe you've been in a no wake zone, but you've seen somebody come through there and they're coming through there you know, too hot, too fast, and all of a sudden they just leave a wake. And all of a sudden, all these boats, you know, they're tossing and, and it's just, it's just bad for everybody because somebody came through and the wake of the boat, it just caused chaos. The wake of our drift can not only have consequences in real time, and it does, but the consequences of our drift can be generational, can be generational. When you drift away, the wake that's caused by your drift can actually have generational consequences. And that's what we're gonna see in the story that we're gonna talk about today. It's a story that's over 2,000 years old, but even though some of you may know it, it's gonna be familiar to all of us in the sense that we find a little bit of our story in this story. Um, it, it's connected to the grander story of Israel, and I'll just help us all get on the same page real quickly. You know, God made a man by the name of Abraham a promise that he gave his son Isaac and gave his other son Jacob. You know, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Uh, God made a promise to Abraham and then to his son Isaac and then to his grandson Jacob that, hey, one day the whole world's gonna be blessed by one of the descendants of Abraham. And not only that, but God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob a very specific 
specific plot of land that would be their land. And they would live upon that land and call that land home. And it was known as the land of Canaan. It was known as the promised land. Uh, and it was known eventually as the land of, of Israel. And, and so Israel's story uh, is a story that's much like our own. Israel, they were slaves. You know, these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they became slaves in Egypt and they were there for 400 plus years. And then Moses led them out, you know, part of the Red Sea, that whole thing. And then he was trying to lead them to Canaan, trying to lead them to the promised land. But in just a few months time, in just a short period of time, Israel, this brand new nation that had been set free, they began to drift. And the drift was consequential. Uh, And not only that, it was consequential for future generations because there was a generation who decided we can't go into the promised land. So what did God do? God said, okay, well then you're gonna have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So their drift, it just didn't affect them, but it affected other people and other generations. So after 40 years, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, leads the nation of Israel across the Jordan River into the land of promise. And for about a generation or so, everybody kind of followed after God. Everybody served God and and it was great. But then we talked about it in week one that Joshua and the elders, once they died, another generation rose up that didn't know the Lord. So there was something happening in that generation with Joshua and those elders and that leadership. There was something that was happening that no one could see. There was something that was happening that no one could feel. There was a drift that was happening. And to look from the outside in, you couldn't see it. And to be in the middle of it, you couldn't see it. And the only way that you can see it is by looking back on it because we know that it happened because there was such a drift that took place. It says that there was a generation that rose up that did not know the Lord. There was a generation of moms and dads that drifted. And because moms and dads drifted, there were generational consequences. There were grandmothers and grandfathers who drifted. And because of it, there were generational consequences. And whenever there is a parental drift of faith in one generation, it can often result in a departure of faith in the next generation. Whenever moms and dads and grandparents and aunt and uncles and families decide to drift from their faith. It can actually cause a departure of faith in the next generation. So this is huge. And especially if you are a mom, especially if you're a dad, especially if you're a grandparent, or you have some type of influence over the next generation, this is a really big deal. Because if we drift on our watch, if we drift in our generation, the consequences of our drift, the wake of that drift can be generational in its consequence. And that's what happened in the days of Joshua and those elders, a whole generation rose up that didn't know the Lord. So there, there were consequences beyond that generation. And then, you know, so often our story, it was Israel's story. They cycled away from faith. They cycled back to faith. They, they recommitted themselves. And, and in time, Israel became a kingdom. And when they were a kingdom, God had given them exactly what God, what they had asked for. They asked for a king. But more than that, they were standing right in the middle of God's promises that he had kept to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he promised that one day the descendants of Abraham would become a kingdom. And then they were living in the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they were living right in the middle of all of these promises that God had kept. They were living right in the middle of all of these prayers that God had answered. But even in the midst of that, something was happening over time. It was a drift. And very few people knew that it was happening and very few people could see that it was happening. 
People didn't realize what was going on, but there was a drift that started to occur. And the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they, they fell prey to the currents within themselves and around them, and they became attracted to the, the surrounding cultures and to the idols and, and to the way of life and to the moral codes of the people who lived around them rather than the code of ethics and the law of God and the way of truth that God had given them to live by. And so they began to drift away from what was right and what was good and what was best. And when you study this period of Israel's history, we learn something about ourselves. That's absolutely true. And maybe you've already realized it about yourself. We drift towards beliefs that excuse our behavior because beliefs that excuse our behavior often seem the most believable. That's what Israel did. That's what a lot of us have a tendency to do. We drift towards beliefs. Well, I don't believe that anymore. Here's what I really believe. Why do you believe that? Well, you know, I've thought about it and I've read some things, but, but really, if we just got really honest about it, it's because we've decided to change our beliefs because there's really a particular avenue of behavior we wanna pursue. And by changing our beliefs, we can excuse our behavior. And so we all drift towards beliefs that excuse our behavior because those beliefs often, they seem most believable to us. And of course they seem most believable to us because it's what we wanna believe because of what we wanna do. And so this was Israel's tendency. And this is many of our tendencies as well. We adopt beliefs and positions that excuse our behavior. And so for 300 years, the people drifted towards beliefs that excuse their behavior. And for 300 years, God called them back to return back to what was right and what was good and what was best. But they refused. This is how the historian uh, recorded that period of Israel's history. He said, the Lord, the Lord, the God, of, the, the God of their ancestors sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers. They mocked God's messengers. They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. The wrath of God was kindled. And you say, what's the wrath of God? Well, oftentimes when you read through the scriptures, it seems a lot like the wrath of God is simply when God lets us have our own way. When God lets us go our own way, have our own way, do it our own way, that often seems to be the wrath of God because it takes us to some really dark, dangerous, deadly places. And it says for 300 years, God sent prophets to say, hey, you're drifting, you're drifting, come back. You're drifting, return to the place that you drifted from. And the people, they didn't find any relevance in it. They didn't find it valuable enough. So they just kind of scoffed at it. They said, we don't see the need of this. We don't see the relevance of this. We don't see why this makes any difference at all, how we're living. Why should we adjust the way we wanna live for what seems like an old fashioned, antiquated way of thinking? And so they just ignored it. And again, we come back to the idea that the wake of our drift can have generational consequences because they refused to return. And so what did God do? God gave them over to the Babylonians. And the Babylonians came into Jerusalem as an instrument of God's judgment. And he destroyed Jerusalem. The Babylonians absolutely pillaged and destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple, they destroyed the walls, they left thousands dead in the street, and then they took thousands more captive back to Babylon because the wake of one generation's drift can have consequences upon future generations. Sons and daughters were taken captive to Babylon because of the choices 
of their moms and dads. Think about that for a moment. Grandsons and granddaughters were taken captive to Babylon because of the choices of their grandparents and their great-grandparents. Because the wake of our drift can have generational consequences. So they, they go there for 70 years. Then Babylon is conquered by Persia and Cyrus the Great, he decides that he's gonna rule a little bit differently. He lets the captives go back home. And that's how he is going to seduce their loyalty. He's gonna be good to them. He's gonna let them go back to where they wanna be most. He's gonna let them go back home. And because he lets them go back home, he figures they're gonna be loyal to him. And so he lets the Jewish people go back home and the first order of business once they get back home is to rebuild the temple. Because the temple is at the very heart of Jewish faith. And this is what Ezra, Ezra the scribe records at that particular point in history and says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns because they got food, water, and shelter in place, it's hard to do much before you get that settled. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem because everybody understood, hey, we've got work to do. We've got important work to do. And the important work was to rebuild the temple. And so Verse 10 says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, because this was what was most important. This was their purpose at the moment was to rebuild this temple because at the epicenter of their faith was the Jewish temple. This was the tangible center of their faith. This was, this was the avenue through which their expressions of faith uh, were most you know, prominently you know, expressed. They, they would offer sacrifices, they had the priesthood, they had all of these ceremonies. You know, there was no more sacred piece of property than the temple mount. And, and so they came back and they said, we gotta rebuild this temple because this is at the heart of our faith. This is what's most important. This is why God has brought us back here to let us rebuild his house because we've got to get back to worshiping the way that he told us to worship. And we have to have this temple to do that. So it was a big day just because they'd laid the foundation of the temple. I mean, it was a momentous day. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness. In that moment, think about this. In that moment, they're standing in the middle of answered prayers. For 70 years, they've been in Babylon and they've been asking God, God, bring us back. God, bring us back. God, bring us back. God, bring us back. And God had brought them back. And in this moment, they're standing right in the middle of an answered prayer. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been standing right in the middle of something you know it's an answer to prayer? I mean, it's weighty, it's profound. I mean, it's significant to be standing right in the moment when you know God has answered a prayer. They're standing in the moment of God keeping his promises because God had promised that he was gonna bring them back. So they're standing in a moment that they'll never forget. It says the priest were in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with symbols, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, the king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good and his love towards Israel endures forever. They're standing right in the middle of God's goodness. Right in the middle of God's goodness, he's brought them back home. They're standing right in the middle of God's love because when they wondered, has God forgotten us? Has God cast us off? God has reminded them once again that he loves them unconditionally. They're the apple of his eye and he has brought them back and they are surrounded by the goodness of God. You ever felt like that? It's just that in this, in this one particular moment, maybe this one particular season of your life, you just feel so surrounded by the goodness of God. You, stand, you feel like you stand right in the middle of God's faithfulness and God's answered prayer. That's where they were. 
They knew in that moment that God had remained faithful to them when they were not faithful to him. They knew in that moment that God had remained committed to them when they had been uncommitted to him. They knew that God had kept every promise that he made about bringing them back through Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. They're standing right in the middle of God's goodness and they've got praise and thanksgiving. It's a day they would never forget. And it says, on all the people, and all the people gave a great shout of praise because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And you would expect a moment like this to have with it such momentum that would just keep things moving forward. You would expect a moment like this to create such momentum in people's hearts such synergy among the people that it would keep things moving forward. To be in the middle of an answered prayer, to be in the middle of God keeping one of his promises, to know that you're right in the middle of God's goodness and God's love, you you would expect a moment like this to be all that you would need to continue to do all that God has asked you to do as it relates to building this temple. You would expect that God's faithfulness would be enough to blow up their faith that God's commitment to them would be enough to submit their commitment to him. But you know what happened? What happens for a lot of us? Drift began to set in. Standing in the middle of an answered prayer, drift sets in. Standing in the middle of God keeping his promise, drift sets in. And in chapter four, Ezra says, and the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. A standstill. How do you go from praise and thanksgiving in one moment to quitting and walking away in the next? How do you find yourself in the middle of God's faithfulness and in the middle of God's goodness and give up? How do you find yourself in the middle of an answered prayer and walk away from the one who answered your prayer? How do you do that? How do you find yourself in the middle of God's goodness, but you walk away from the one who has been so good to you? How do you find yourself in that situation where God has been so faithful to you, but yet you decide to walk away? That's where they were. That's where they found themselves. (laughs) Right in the middle of God's love and goodness all these answered prayers, and now they're walking away from the one who had extended it all to them. How do you find yourself in the middle of a move of God and move away from God? It shouldn't be possible, but it is. We know that it is. It's happened to you. It's happened to me. It's happened to us. You get distracted, then distraction leads to neglect, and neglect leads to apathy, and apathy leads to disengagement, and disengagement just becomes a way of life. It's just another way to describe drift. They drifted from their purpose. They drifted from action. They drifted from progress. They drifted from their calling, from the task at hand. They drifted from what was most important in that moment, which was to rebuild the house and the temple of God. And consequently, there were consequences, not only for them, but for others as well. So how does something like this happen? Well, Ezra tells us, and I'm gonna give you this portion of the story quick because the ending is the most important part of the story, but it's important to know how in the world can it, how can it be 
that you and I could be in the middle of God's goodness and God's love and God's faithfulness and God's answered prayer? And how is it that we could be in the middle of it in one season and walk away from it in the next? How is it that we could be in a place where we can't wait for what comes next and then all of a sudden we don't care what comes next? How do we get in a place where we think that the best is truly yet to come, but we find ourselves in a short while believing that the best is past? How does that even happen? Well, he tells us, he goes back and he says, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel, the leader, and the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of, and they go back to a moment in history when the Assyrians invaded the Northern Empire and the 10 tribes and they carried them off into captivity, but some were left behind and the Assyrians, they had intermarriage with those Jewish people. And in the New Testament, we call these people Samaritans, but they were a mixed race of Jews and Assyrians. Uh, and they said, we've been worshiping the same God as you ever since the Assyrians invaded. We're on your side, we're for you. But, but Ezra says, no, they're not friends, they're foes. They're, they're not here to help, they're here to, they're here to harm. They're there to sabotage. He says, but Zerubbabel and Joshua, the rest and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel, they answered and they said, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God, so we don't want your help. He says, we alone will build it to the Lord, for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. And so he said no to them. But it says, then the peoples around them set out to discourage. Pay attention to that. They set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid, pay attention to that, to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of King Darius, the king of Persia. When you read a little bit later on in chapter four, these people, they write a letter they write a letter to the king of Persia and they say, hey, let us tell you why these Jewish people are re really rebuilding this temple and they, they misrepresent their motives. They say, you know how troublesome these people have been. Just go read your history books. The moment that you allow them to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, they're gonna fight for their independence again and you're not gonna get any taxes from them. So it's best just to shut them down. And so the new king wrote a letter in response and said, okay, you guys need to stop building this temple. And then thus the work of the house of God. It came to a standstill. And so it would for the next 16 years. For the next 16 years, all that lays there is the foundation to the temple. For 16 years, every time they walk by the foundation to the temple, they're reminded that there's work undone, that there's work unfinished, that what we started, we haven't finished. For 16 years, every time they walked by the foundation of the house of the Lord, they should have been reminded that what God has called us to do, we have neglected. The purpose that God has called us to in this season, we have walked away from. It should have been a reminder that they were drifting from where God wanted them to be, but for 16 years, they just lived their life. Building came to a standstill, and in many ways, their faith came to a standstill. And what happened to them has happened to a lot of us. You say, well, what happened to them? I'll tell you what happened to them. Fear. Few emotions are as powerful as fear. It says that their enemies set out to make them afraid because fear has the capacity to affect you, to affect me on every single level, psychologically, physically, relationally, spiritually. Fear is what will cause you to forfeit your potential because you're so afraid 
You don't take the actions necessary to realize the potential that God has placed in you. It's fear that will freeze you from experiencing progress, from experiencing progress in any area of your life. It's fear that makes us reluctant to make the changes that we know we need to make in order to be the people that God has called us to be. For some people, it's fear of failure. They're so afraid to fail, they'd rather sit on the sidelines, they'd rather sit on the bench rather than get in the game. Because to get in the game, it might mean they may fail. So they'd just rather play it safe, stay on the sidelines, sit on the bench, let somebody else do it because I, I, I'm just afraid I'm gonna mess it up, I'm afraid I'm gonna fail. And for some people, a fear of failure, it causes them to miss God's best. For some, it's a fear of being criticized. Well, what are they gonna say about us? What, what, what are they gonna think about us? What are the guys gonna say about me? If we start doing this, what are they gonna talk about us, you know, down at the school or down at the office? You know, what, what, what are they gonna say about us? For some people, it's a fear of swimming upstream, going against the current. Moms and dads suffer from this a lot, I believe. Well, there's some things we know we probably should do, but, but I just don't know. I just don't wanna make it weird for, for him. I just don't wanna make it weird for her. And we're just afraid that if we do some of the things we know we probably should do, we're just afraid. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll get mad at us. Maybe, maybe they'll rebel more. Maybe, maybe they'll just, I don't know, maybe they won't love us as much. And there's all these things that you got in your mind and in your heart that you know you probably should do as a mom or as a dad, but there's fear that just keeps you from doing it. It's the fear of the unknown. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Fear. Fear can bring you to a standstill. It can cause you to miss God's best. And today's fear robs us of tomorrow's potential. Moms, dads, your, your fear today about doing what you know you need to do with your son or daughter, the wake of that could have generational consequences. What you're afraid of today and how you allow it to control you and to hold you back is robbing you of what God perhaps has in store for you tomorrow. Because fear plunders progress, it paralyzes us, it causes us to miss and squander opportunity. Imagine if fear had gotten the best of Moses. Imagine how that story would be different if he hadn't been willing to go stand in front of Pharaoh. Imagine how if David hadn't been willing to stand in front of Goliath, how that story would be different. Imagine if Abraham wouldn't have been willing to leave Ur, how that story would have turned out different. Or if the disciples would have ever been afraid to leave Jerusalem. Imagine how different the story would be. Faith always writes a better story than fear. Why would we hand the pen over to fear to write the stories of our lives? Why would we do that? Why would we hand fear the pen and say, write this story out? Why wouldn't we give the pen to faith? Because faith always writes a better story than fear. Even though fear and faith are a little bit alike because both of them asks us to believe in things we can't see. Fear is just faith that it won't work out. Well, it won't make a difference. It won't make a difference one way or the other. It's too late. It, 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 ships already sailed. Fear is a terrible thing. It brings us to a standstill. It did for Israel. It, it will to us as well. Second thing they dealt with was frustration. And, and this is just an emotional response to perceived opposition that reveals itself in anger, disappointment, 
and annoyance. In the text, the Hebrew picture is that it's a pebble in your shoe. You ever gone running and you got a rock in your shoe and as you were just running, just, you were just so irritated because you, you, got a little, you got a little rock in your shoe, you had something in your shoe and it was just very tiny, but man, did it cause some serious aggravation. That's what these people were to the people of Judah. They were like a pebble in their shoe. And, and frustration, it always misdirects and distracts us from what's most important. That's how frustration works. It distracts us and it misdirects us. It gets us thinking elsewhere. It gets us looking elsewhere. Case in point, Moses and Israel. Israel wouldn't stop complaining. He got so frustrated. What did he do? He struck a rock. Why did he strike a rock? He had to vent. Frustration leads to venting. And you know who we usually vent on when we're frustrated? The people who don't deserve it. Our kids catch the brunt of it. Our spouses catch the brunt of it. Strangers catch the brunt of it. Coworkers catch the brunt of it. Frustration's just unresolved disappointment that simmers until it boils. And then prolonged frustration begins to infect our thoughts, our attitudes, and our motivations. It turns optimists into cynics. Once upon a time, there were some people, they could see what was positive, they could see what was good, then they just got so frustrated with whatever it is that they were frustrated with, and then all of a sudden they were cynical of everything. Nothing was good. Everything's bad. It's never gonna get any better. Frustration is what turns creative people into just negative people. Not able to think outside the box, not able to think any further than what's right in front of their face. And then frustration begins to be a filter that everything you see and everything you hear, it flows through the filter of frustration and now everything, every action and reaction that you and I have, it's been poisoned with frustration. And it reveals itself with impatience. Now you're just impatient, it's just impatient. Where's that impatience come from? It comes from frustration. Now all you do is complain, 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 why? It's frustration. And frustration will bring us to a standstill where we get so frustrated, we get misdirected and distracted away from our purpose. The enemy frustrated Israel. And some of us, we may be so frustrated today because we've given power over to some people. And because we've given power over to people, they control us. They pull our emotions like a puppet. Because whenever we give power over to people and over our emotions and over our mental well-being, whenever we give somebody else power over us, we automatically forfeit the best that God has for us, automatically. Some of you, some of us, you have handed control of your life over to cable news. They control how you feel on a day-to-day basis. And now you walk around so frustrated, so annoyed, so angry. It's right there beneath the surface because you're listening to people and the narratives that they're spinning, listening to those narratives from people you don't know that you've never met that you assume for whatever reason you can trust. And now you've handed control over your emotional well-being over to them. And you're going through your life so frustrated, it's brought you to a standstill. For some of you, it's somebody at the office. You just absolutely, you've handed control over to them and now they control how you feel and they frustrate you, they annoy you. You're so angry when you leave the office and go home, you can't help but yell. 
at the kids and your spouse. And the kids and the spouse are like, what in the world? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And it's frustration. Some of you are just frustrated with you. You're just frustrated with you and you take it out on everybody else. And it's brought you to a standstill. Third thing they, they had to deal with was discouragement. Discouragement. They were so discouraged, they just quit. They were so discouraged, they just started believing that what they were doing, it didn't matter. When we're discouraged how we feel, we just think that's how things are. That's how discouragement works. How we feel, we think that's how things are. And they may not be that way, that's just our feelings and our feelings are misleading. Because discouragement can cause us to believe in false realities. And we think those false realities are true realities. And we get so, so discouraged. We just create all of these false narratives and we believe they're true. We say things like this, you know, everybody just, everybody just, everybody hates me. Nobody likes me. Everybody thinks this about me. And it's just so discouraged. People can't get past it and they create these false realities and they believe them to be true when they're not true at all. Happened to Elijah, happened to Israel, happened to us. So what did they do? They got discouraged and the people quit. That's what happened. The people quit. Progress was abandoned. Purpose was abandoned. And 16 years go by until God sends a prophet. And God sends a prophet 16 years later to say, come on, what are you doing? You've drifted for too long. You need to come back. And this is where we land the plane because... This is what they needed to hear. And this, is, this may be what some of you and what some of us need to hear. This is what the prophet Haggai said. He shows up 16 years. The temple foundation's been laid. No other work's been done. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. They had an excuse because we always do. You know, it's not the right time. Doesn't feel right. Doesn't feel good. This is not the right time. So they were telling themselves, hey, we don't need to do this. And excuses, they just make us feel better about not doing better. So they had their excuses, we have ours. I don't need to tell you what yours are. You probably already know what they are. I know what mine are. It says, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai and said, it's time. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? He says, you've been so busy working on your kingdom, investing in your world, living your priorities. Lesser things have been the most important things. Is it really time for that or should we talk about it's time to do something more important. It's time to change course. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thoughts to your ways because you got some blind spots. You've gotten so busy with life, you've abandoned your purpose. You've gotten so busy with life, you've abandoned progress. You got so busy, you've left this temple unfinished. You've made lesser things, the most important things. So it says, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of that guy, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jezodak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. So God stirred their hearts. They begin to, they begin to sense, my gosh, what have we been doing? They had a moment of clarity. We've been drifting. And so, so they came and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. And so as they gathered to work, the prophet, the prophet shows up and he asks the people the question. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Talking about Solomon's temple, the one that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. How does it look to you now? How, do, how does this new temple look? Does it not seem to you like nothing? He says, some of you remember what Solomon's temple was like? 
And it was amazing, it was magnificent, it was extravagant. And you look at this temple, mm, doesn't look that great. It's not that big, it's smaller, looks inferior. And some of you, you've got the past in your mind and you're thinking, what in the world are we doing wasting our time on this? It's never gonna be as good as it was. It's never gonna be like it was. So this kind of seems like a waste of time. This seems like a waste of resources. This seems like there's not much consequence to it because look at this foundation. It's nothing compared to what the temple used to be. But the prophet said, but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. Get to it, for I am with you, declares the Lord. And this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house, the one that you're working on right now, it will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. He says, you remember how Moses built the tabernacle and the glory of God filled it? What you're doing is gonna be greater. You remember when Solomon built the temple and the glory of God filled it and they couldn't even stand what you're working on? The glory is gonna be greater than that. And Haggai was looking to a day that the people couldn't even fathom in that moment. Haggai was looking through the corridors of time to when the Messiah, the Son of God, the embodiment of the glory of God would stand in the very temple that they were building. That the son of God, God incarnate was gonna stand in the temple they were building and begin to initiate the plan, the plan of the ages, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to save the world from their sin. And he says, you people, you, you can't even understand what you're a part of in this moment. Because one day the glory of God, the Son of God will stand in the temple that you're building. You can't even imagine how big the work that you're a part of is right now. It may not look like it, it may not feel like it. When you look back, you may see better days, greater days, but the prophet says what you're working on in this moment, it may seem small, it may seem inferior, but you have no idea the size and the scope of what you are a part of in this moment. So why don't you get busy and build? Stay attentive, stay engaged, stay active, and get back to work. And here, here's the good news. If the wake of our drift can have generational consequences, so can our return. Moms and dads, if our drift can have generational consequences, so can our return. Grandparents, if our drift can have generational consequences, so can our return. What we decide to return to that we drifted from and when we re-engage our purpose and God's plan for our lives, God's calling on our lives, when we re-engage with that and we start doing the good work that God has called us to, it may not seem much, it may not seem significant, it may not seem monumental, but it may just be that God would say that what you're a part of, the glory of this, is gonna be greater than the glory of everything that came before it. 
And so Ezra records the end of the story and says, so the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Edo. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. So they finished the work. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. It's hard for us to imagine just how emotional this was. The temple's finished. And once again, they're standing right in the middle of answered prayer. They're standing right in the middle of the faithfulness of God. They're standing right in the middle of the goodness of God. And they celebrate the first Passover that they've had since they've returned back to the land. Undoubtedly, they thought about the first Passover of the Israelites in Egypt the night that they would go from being slaves to being set free. Maybe they thought about the first Passover that Joshua celebrated with the people once they crossed over to the land of promise. Passover was all about taking a moment to remember what God had done for them, where God had brought them from. It was all about remembering in that moment, God's love for them, God's patience towards them, God's mercies, which had been new every single morning and every single season of their lives, that God had been gentle with them, that God had been good to them, that God had been committed to them when they were not committed to Him, that God had been faithful when they had been faithless. They celebrated Passover and they took a moment to remember that they were standing right in the middle of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And I think that's what we should take home. I think wherever you are, whatever your story is, wherever you are along the journey, you should take a moment and remember God's faithfulness in your past. I think you should take a moment and remember God's goodness in your present. And I think you should take a moment to remember God's promises concerning your future. I want you to think for a moment how God loved you in those seasons when you didn't care very much about Him. I want you to take a moment and think about those seasons where God was committed to you when you weren't committed to Him. When God was faithful, when you were unfaithful. I want you to think about those moments, those mornings, those nights, those seasons when you thought you were done, but God whispered in your ear, that he wasn't finished with you. I want you to think back to those moments and those times and those seasons when you, when you thought it was over and you laid down the pen and God picked it up and said, this is just a new beginning. Those times you thought failure was final, there was no overcoming it, but God offered you forgiveness greater than your failure. Those moments when you were wallowing in guilt and you just thought guilt was insurmountable, but God's grace proved to be greater than your guilt. Those nights when the tears wouldn't stop, but joy came in the morning, just like he said it would. And take a moment right now to remember God's goodness right now in your life today. Some of you, you just have to look to the right or the left to look to your wife or to your husband or to your son or to your daughter. You think about where he's brought you to the good place that he has you in. 
the place you'll go back to and lay your head down tonight, the transportation you drove here, the transportation you'll drive back, the food you've got in the pantry, the food you ate last night, the clothes you have, the shoes you wear, the goodness of God, the money you may have, it may not be a lot, but it's enough to get by. The goodness of God in your present that you're standing in the middle of. And then think about God's promises concerning your future. That nothing's ever gonna separate you from the love of God. That even though you may fall down, you're gonna get back up. You're not a failure, you're an overcomer. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But the promise of an empty tomb which says for you, the best is yet to come. The glory of the latter, oh, <laughs> it's going to eclipse the glory of the former. Where God's taken you is so much better than where you've been. There is so much better than here. No matter what it looks like, how it feels, how it seems, the promise of an empty tomb is the best is yet to come. Let me invite you to bow your heads for just a moment. Everywhere, eyes closed. And I want you to just take a moment and I want you to think, I want you to remember God's faithfulness in your past. Think about it. The answered prayer, the goodness, the faithfulness, the promises kept. I want you to take a moment and remember God's goodness in this, this moment, this present season of your life. And I want you to remember God's promises for the future, that the best is yet to come. Father, as we sit in this moment, fill our minds and hearts with the reality of your goodness and faithfulness, I pray.